chapter 18. Um, we're getting ready to start a new teaching series in the new year. We're not there yet, and so I asked the Lord what, what he would have me share with you this morning, and, and here it is. Does, does anybody else hate math? Raise your hand. If you, I mean, you know, some of us love it. I get that. Some of us hate it. Uh, I, I'm one of the people in the latter category. I can do the math. I can learn it. I can figure out how to do it. But for me, it's just work. It's not joy. Uh, it's just something that has to be done. I have friends who, who think math is music. They just love it. Uh, matter of fact, I, I have one friend who gets deliriously happy when he does advanced math. His name's Andrew. We were buddies in middle school. We were friends up until ninth grade. In ninth grade, he left and went to MIT. <laughs> so now he's the friend I hate. Uh, but um, yeah, he, he loves math. I don't. I had a teacher tell me one time that the reason I don't enjoy math is because there's no room for creativity in it. And uh, he was probably right, but, uh, you know, people who are, are into it tell me there's lots of room for creativity. But when it comes to math, I, I'm just not a fan. And my son, for Christmas, uh, gave me a book full of dad jokes, and there just happened to be a bunch of dad jokes about math. So brace yourself this morning, all right? I came across these in, in the book. Why was the fraction nervous about marrying the decimal? Because he would have to convert, right? <laughs> If you've been around here, you know what you're in for. Just brace yourself for a couple minutes here. Why did the student get upset when his math teacher called him average? Because it was a mean thing to say. Why is the obtuse triangle always frustrated? Because he's never right. Okay, some of the math people get it. Um, how come you can never trust a math teacher holding graph paper? Because it means she's plotting something. Why should you never talk to Pi? Because he just goes on and on forever. Uh, kind of like that one. How come you, oh, uh, uh, did you hear the one about the statistician? Probably. <laughs> what do you call dudes who love math? Algebros. Uh, almost done. Dang it. Why is six afraid of seven? Because seven, eight, nine. Yeah, 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 yeah. The problem, one last one, the problem with math jokes is that calculus jokes are all derivative, trigonometry jokes are too graphic, algebra jokes are formulaic, and arithmetic jokes are just too simple. <laughs> yeah. Okay, we made it through that. Sometimes, here's, here's why I bring it up. Seriously, sometimes we fall into the trap of thinking that relationships are just math. Let me say that again. We, we fall into the trap of thinking that relationships, marriages, parenting, friendships, or even our relationship with God, sometimes we fall into the trap of thinking they're just math. And, and if I get all the numbers lined up, and if the outcome is what it's supposed to be in some you know, sense, then, then it's good. But the reality is that relationships are much more than math and especially our relationship with God. You know, sometimes we reduce our walk with God to math. We do one thing, he does another, boom, the boxes are checked, the forms are filled out, I've jumped through the hoops, we're all good. But grace, the gospel of grace, tells us that a relationship with God isn't just math, and we should be glad it isn't. You know, the truth is, if every one of us got exactly what we deserve, there would be no hope for any of us. And that's part of the gospel. But 
The gospel means that our relationship with God is more than math. And God wants to capture your heart with that reality this morning. As we get ready to step into the new year, we need to know there's more than going on in our lives than just math. Maybe you've reduced your relationship with God to math. Uh, You know, you say, I said a prayer in 1998, I'm all good. That's like saying, I told you I loved you when we got married and nothing's changed. You see, a relationship is much more than that. Thinking like that is a road to nowhere because God is a living God and you and me are living souls. And that's what Jesus was talking about in Matthew chapter 18 when when Peter tried to reduce his relationships to math. Let's listen to, to God's word. Matthew chapter 18, beginning with verse 15. Jesus was teaching his disciples about relationships, and and he he says this. He says, if your brother sins against you, wrongs you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. And if he listens to you, you have won your brother over. If he won't listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, then tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. It's an interesting phrase. We're going to explore it in a moment. Let's stop for a moment before we move into the story Jesus is going to tell and realize that in these instructions our Lord has given, there's a lot of grace There's a lot of grace in the instructions. First of all, notice how he starts in verse 1. He says, just between the two of you. Go to your brother, your sister, in private, just between the two of you. Church, understand something. Most conversations about hurt should happen in private. Not on social media, not through third parties, not in letters that you write. They should happen in person, one-on-one, just the two of you alone together. When we approach someone privately, in a private place, with humility, there is a kind of safety and love and respect in that setting that sets the stage for reconciliation. And that's why Jesus is giving you and me these instructions about somebody who's hurt us, about someone with whom we have a broken relationship. He says, go to them in private. Meet with them alone, just the two of you, where no reputations are at stake, where nobody's listening, where you don't have allies or enemies. Do it in private. In in, in our day and age, we've resorted often to using social media as a shortcut to relationships or texting. You know, we have a rule on our staff. I say, hey, if there's any conflict happening, never respond by text, email, or phone. Go in person. It's a requirement. Talk to that person in person. Because see, when you do it the other way, the person becomes less than a person. (laughs) They become just an objective But Jesus says, hey, Greg, when somebody has hurt you, talk to them in person, in private, uh, alone, so that the stage is set for reconciliation. I love what Vince Lombardi, the great Green Bay Packers coach, said. He said, praise in public, criticize in private, always. 
I can tell you that my wife is really amazing at this. Somewhere along the line, she learned this deeply. And, and so when I make a mistake, and, and most of my mistakes are in public because I live in public, she has this knack of coming to me later when we're alone and saying, hey, stupid. <laughs> and do you know that it's a lot easier to hear, hey, stupid, when it's just the two of you? When you're just alone in a moment. <laughs> In all seriousness, when she comes to me alone like that, I feel her love for me because she came to me alone. You know what I'm talking about. God says, do this when you've been hurt, when there's a broken relationship and, and you're seeking to restore it. Do it this way. You know, drive to that person's house. Go to that person uh, in person and, and sit with them and meet with them. Right at the beginning of Jesus' teaching about brokenness in relationships, he he lays this context down. And then the second thing he says is, he says, if, if, you, if they listen, you have won your brother over. He, he, hear me, church. If reconciliation isn't the goal of your confrontation, don't do it. Let me say it again. If reconciliation isn't the goal of your confrontation, then don't confront. You're not ready. You're not yet walking in the Spirit. Sometimes we confront as if it's a power struggle, a battle, a war that we want to win instead of seeking to reconcile. Jesus says, don't do it that way. When you go to that person, when you confront that person about whatever the issue is, do it with the goal of reconciliation, with the goal of being restored to friendship and fellowship. Until you want the relationship restored, you're just nursing your bitterness. You know, to, to grab hold of a popular meme today, this isn't what Jesus is talking about when he talks about confrontation, all right? It's not this kind of thing. Now, of course, if it's a cat, there's different rules, but you know what I'm saying? <laughs> put that away. Simply put, reconciliation must be the goal of confrontation. Ask yourself deeply, when you think about people you want to confront, why? When you think about those maybe on the other side of the culture war, do you just want to win or do you want to be reconciled to them? When you think of your family, your friends, when you think of that, that difficult person in your workplace, do you want to be reconciled to them? You know, God sent his son to reconcile us to him when we were way out of bounds, when we were on the wrong side of the issues. He didn't wait till we were on the right side. He didn't wait for us at all. He set out to pursue reconciliation. That's the Christmas story. That's the gospel story. So Jesus, setting the context for his story, lays a foundation of grace. And then the, 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 the part we might not immediately understand is at the end there in verse 16, he says, you know, if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. What does that mean? Some of us think it means to ignore them, to hate them, to reject them, to exclude them, but, but that doesn't line up with everything Jesus said and taught. And in fact, it's out of context culturally as well. Jesus said he came to seek and save pagans and tax collectors. So to treat someone as a pagan and a tax collector doesn't mean to treat them as your enemy. It means to treat them as the object of your desire for reconciliation, to begin to focus your prayers on that relationship, to begin to search for ways to bring reconciliation into that relationship. You know, Jesus invited at least one tax collector to become his disciple. That's how he treated pagans and tax collectors. Hey, come follow me. 
He gave his highest praise, the Bible says, to a Roman soldier. He, he told the parable of the good Samaritan, not the good Israelite. And, and he warned Israel explicitly in Luke chapter 14 that the banquet God had prepared for them would be given to others, to pagans and tax collectors who responded to his desire for reconciliation. So the thought here is not that you would turn these people into your enemies. The thought here is, in fact, that you would begin to see them as those who need to be reconciled, who need to be saved, who need to be reached, that they become the object of your prayers. In fact, over in Romans chapter 12, verse 20, Paul echoes this idea. He says, if it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. If your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. And then he says this, in doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Now, what that means is you will inspire that person to change their heart and spirit. To heap burning coals on someone's head doesn't mean to dump fire on them, okay? In the culture, what you did is if you wanted to express publicly, if you wanted to say, I'm sorry, you would actually take a brazier with a small amount of coals and you would rest them on your head and sit at the city gate. And that was a sign culturally that you were in a repentant state, that your heart was changed, that you wanted to make things right, that you wanted to pause it. So what Paul's talking about here is treat them in such a way that you would inspire them to want to be reconciled to you. There's a lot of grace in these instructions that Jesus lays out here. But, but Peter hears all this, and he wants to reduce it to math. So look at what he says in verse 21. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times... Shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? What's Peter saying? Give me the rules, Lord. Give me the equation. Give me the formula. I want to check my boxes. <laughs> I want to do all the right things I'm supposed to do without ever letting my heart be genuinely changed. So give me the math so that I can act appropriately. Very often, people will come to my office seeking counsel and they're asking essentially this question. One, two, three, four. Here's what happened. Am I good to go? <laughs> Can I get mad? I actually had somebody come to me and say, here's what this person, I'm not kidding, some years ago, somebody came to me and said, here's what this person has done. One, two, three. May I kill them? They were serious. Now, the stuff was pretty serious, but they were also serious. Does the math allow me to go take this person's life? I said, yes, absolutely. No, I said, no, 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 no. It's much more than that. In, in smaller ways, we do it all the time. Hey, so-and-so has completed the formula for me to reject and exclude them and never have anything to do with them again because the math adds up. But God says there's more to relationships than math. We are tempted to reduce our relationships to formulas. It's part of our self-centeredness. It helps us when we're mad and looking for reasons to vent our anger. My, my nephew right now is in the process of becoming a sheriff down in, uh, in Eugene, Oregon. Um, he's in the early parts of that process. And when I think about him becoming a sheriff, he's this little guy I've watched grow up. Now he's a young man. And I think to myself, he's going to be in these awful police situations, domestic violence, you know, assault, all this kind of stuff. And, and I think to myself, wow, you know, that can be overwhelming. And my prayer for him is that he will grow the wisdom to be able to deal with those situations well. Because it's hard. 
I know that I would struggle. If I walked into a domestic violence situation where a guy was beating a woman, there's a huge part of me that says, dude, the math is done, the formula's over, <laughs> now I'm going to do bad things to you. But God says, no, there's more to it than math. And it's in learning that more to it that we discover a freedom in ourselves that can't be found any other way. Grace means relationships. Our relationships with one another, our relationship with God is more than math. You know, the scripture says in one of the more shocking, challenging, and glorious passages in God's word, Romans chapter 5, verse 8, the Bible says this, God proves his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not after we got cleaned up, not after we started to get better. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It means that Jesus went to the cross for bad people like those guilty of domestic violence and drunk driving and racism and sexual perversion and violence and all the rest. To put it another way, to just put it in a context that maybe we need to wrestle with this morning, Jesus died on the cross for Democrats while they're still Democrats. <laughs> and for Republicans while they were still Republicans. That's what he did. It means that God seeks to reconcile with me while I am still a liar, still a thief, still a proud and lustful loser, still a jealous and bitter little ball of insecurities and selfishness. Grace means the gospel is more than math. And that's the good news. And so God says, as you realize this, let your relationship with me and with those around you become more than math. So, so Peter asked this question, what's the math? And Jesus in verse 22 responds, and, and he responds with a math answer, but it's that weird advanced math with exponentials and prime numbers and cosines and all the rest. Jesus answers and says, I tell you not seven times, but 77 times. Now, there's kind of a difficult translation here that makes it equally possible to render the, the verse 70 times seven times. Either way, what it is, is it's a play on the Jewish idea of seven being the perfect number. Jesus is saying an infinity of times. Over and over and over again, Peter. I tell you, not seven times, but 70 times seven or 77 times. What Jesus is saying is, is Peter, don't reduce this to math. It's more than that. I'm so glad that my son hasn't reduced our relationship to math. This may come as a shock to you, but I wasn't a perfect dad. Like everybody else, I tried hard, but all parents fall short of that high calling in one way or another. And yet he sees past that. He sees something more than numbers. Here's the question, do you? In your relationship with your husband, with your wife, with your kids, with your parents, with your neighbors, with the folks you work with, with those on the other side of the fence in whatever culture war you're engaged in, do you see more than numbers? There's an old story I've, I've shared before. It's a favorite of mine. It's about a young priest who visits a wicked older man on his deathbed in the hospital. And, and the priest, according to that form of faith, says, are you sorry for your sins? And the man says, no, I am not. Not one bit. I'd do them all over again if I could, and you can take your religion and go stuff it where the sun don't shine. Lots of people would give up at that point. They'd say, well, the math is done. But this young priest didn't. After thinking for a long moment, 
He said softly to the old man, Are you sorry that you're not sorry? And at that point, the old man got tears in his eyes and whispered, Yes. And the Lord says to that young priest, Well done, you got beyond the math. In the same way, God wants us to know that his love for us goes beyond the math and his call to us is to go beyond the math in our relationships. God sees more than the math in you. Just take that in for a moment. Because one of the awful things about reducing relationships to math is you begin to reduce yourself to math. And once you start to do that, it gets dark fast. But God sees more than math in us. The only way you can frustrate love like that is to ignore it. The only way you can receive it is to begin to see others as more than math as well. So Jesus tells a story. Look at verses 23 and following. The Lord gave Peter that answer, verse 22, 70 times 7, not 7 times Peter. It's not math. And then he tells a story, and it's a simple story. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Since he wasn't able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children, all that he had, be sold to repay the debt. That's just math. You got a bill, you can't pay it, here's the consequences. The servant fell on his knees before him and said, be patient with me, I will pay back everything. And then the master got beyond the math. He took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. That's a lot less. It's like a, a tenth of a talent. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant uh, uh, fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me, I'll pay you back. Same scenario. But this man refused. Because for him, the relationship was math. And so he went off and had the man thrown into prison, debtor's prison as it would be called in those days, until he could pay the debt. Then the master called that servant in and said, Greg, you wicked servant, I canceled all of that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. And then, in a sober and serious denouement aimed right at you and me, Jesus says, this is how my heavenly Father will treat you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. The message is simple. The lesson is uncomplicated. The only way you and I can miss what Jesus is saying here is if you begin comparing sins. Let's not do that. Lots of people do. They're in error. Instead of comparing ourselves to each other or comparing our sins to each other as, we, as if we've all been given the same number of talents in life, which we haven't, we are meant to look our maker in the eye and understand that his mercy to us demands our mercy to one another. His mercy to us, when received, creates a transcendent humility that makes me unable to condemn my brother, my sister, instead makes me feel pity and sorrow for them. His mercy demands it. I remember when I was playing soccer in college and 
And uh, I was voted team captain, and, and then we were having a rough season. We were losing a lot. And one day in practice, several guys got in a fight in practice. Just frustrations boiled over. Well, seeing a couple of guys on a Christian college soccer team get in a fist fight, I just quit. I said, I quit this team. I'm out of here. Isn't that awesome when your captain quits? That's pretty cool, you know. Being captain meant I should be the last one to quit. But instead, I went up to my apartment and sat there and stewed for a little while. And then very slowly, the Holy Spirit revealed to me, Greg, haven't I given you grace beyond measure? Haven't I forgiven your sins? How can you walk out on your brothers? I had to go back down the hill at the end of uh, practice and eat a lot of humble pie. In the same way, Christ followers are driven by grace because we've been given it. Now, understand, church, we're almost done this morning. Understand that there is a difference between forgiveness and trust. You can forgive without trusting. If a man steals from me, I can forgive him, but it doesn't mean I'm going to make him my banker. Jesus does the same thing. The scripture says in John chapter 2, the crowds came to him and wanted to make him king. And the Bible says Jesus would not entrust himself to them because he knew what was in the heart of men. Now listen, he loved those folks so much he was going to die for their sins. He was going to go to the cross. He was going to give himself away on their behalf. Yet he did not trust them. It is possible for us to do the same. Sometimes we get that confused and then we find ourselves unable to forgive because we're unable to trust. No, those are two different things. But what Jesus says is forgive your brother from your heart, from in here. Seek reconciliation with them. The Lord knows that what comes out of us is the result of what's going on inside of us. So he digs at the root of the problem, not the stem. And here's something you want to grasp as a believer. What happens inside of you and me is the most important thing in the world. It's not the headlines. It's not what's going on in the culture. It's not what happens around us. It's what's going on inside us. Here's why. You and I are the only eternal things in this creation. You and I are the only things that last forever. And so what happens inside of us is the most important. Why do you think Jesus spent all his time in Jerusalem instead of Rome? Because he knew the power wasn't in Rome, even though everybody thought so. He knew the power what was happening is what was happening inside of each of us each and every day. Even in Carbonado, <laughs> even in Wilkeson, even in Enumclaw, it's what's going on inside of us that matters. And so the Lord focuses on that. Notice the solemn warning that he finishes with, verse 35. This is how my heavenly Father will treat you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. You see, church, here's the bottom line, is that unforgiveness hurts you more in the end than it hurts anybody else. Right? It does. We're, we're passing out of a year. I wonder if there's some forgiveness that you need to specifically engage in, in your heart, so that it can then flow out to the other parts of your lives. We fear forgiving because we think it means somebody gets away with something. But the truth is that forgiveness sets us free more than anybody else. There's that weird math again. This is a big deal. As we turn into this new year, God wants you to be free from the prison of unforgiveness. Jesus' point in the parable, I love this, is stated positively over in Matthew chapter 7, verse 2, one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Here's what the Lord said, again in the context of relationships. He said, for in the same, catch this, friends, we're almost done. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you.
Take that in for a moment. What, what that means is that I get to choose how much mercy I get. I get to choose it. The more I give, the more I get. If I know I need a lot, all I have to do is give a lot, and I'm guaranteed to get a lot. And each time I choose to do that, the Lord responds like this. This is the cue. He says, well done, Greg. Well done in that moment. I see you. Okay, you can take it away. <laughs> I see you. And with the measure you just used, Greg, on that person who hurt you, on those people who have made themselves your enemies, on that person whose relationship with you is broken, with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. That is awesome news. It means I don't have to live in fear and worry. I just give more grace and by so doing, guarantee that I get more. You know, Rhonda's family was here for, for the Christmas holidays, and, and uh, we went to the, the Thunderdome Car Museum here in town. We hadn't done that yet, and, you know, family's in town, and so we decided to go to go see the Car Museum here in town, and, you know, what a bunch of amazing cars. Um, there's, a, there's a Mustang in there with 800 horsepower. Oh, yeah. <laughs> there, there's a motorcycle in there with 500 horsepower. has a parachute attached to the back of it. I understand why, you know, right? Some amazing cars in there, but, but think of it this way. What if you could choose any car in the museum to become yours? The only catch is your worst enemy also gets the same car. Which one would you choose? You know, I walked around that and kind of an old car guy a little bit, used to be much more than now. And there was a 1967 Ford Shelby Cobra, uh, you know, oh, I know, it's just glorious. And I thought to myself, man, if I could pick any car in here, it would be this one. You know, I would take this one. But what if that also meant that my worst enemy got the same? Then I might pick that little Fiat in the corner, you know, the one that's broken you can barely get into or would I? Or would I? Somebody has a Fiat, I'm sorry. Uh, there was an old broken one, okay? Um, but listen, what, what, what would you choose if you knew that your enemy would get the very same thing? Some people are so full of bitterness that they would make that choice. God invites us to something much higher. He invites us to look him in the eye before we condemn anyone else and then trust judgment to him. That last part is important. When you forgive them, you're leaving judgment to God, not ignoring wrong. And there's a huge difference between those two. A great marriage is an incredible thing, but if you're married, you either learn to deny yourself or you become miserable and eventually unmarried. Our world advertises that marriage is about making you happy first. But the real math of marriage works the other way around. The more you begin to learn to live for the other person the more the relationship becomes what you wanted it to be in the first place this is the new math it's the weird math it's the math of the gospel and this morning God wants to remind us of it he wants to remind you of it as we get ready to go into a new year I wonder if there's someone who needs you to forgive them from your heart now before we go into this new year not to ignore the wrong but to forgive it to make your relationship with them more than the sum of the numbers of what's gone on between you. I wonder if there's somebody in your family. I wonder if there's somebody in your neighborhood or in your workplace, your school, your church, where you need to do that. God invites you to because in so doing, you set yourself free.
as well as setting them free. Would you bow your heads with me for a moment? and Let's give each other kind of a sacred moment with the Lord. Is there someone you need to forgive right here and right now? Is there someone that you need to go to God and say, God, I, I, I release them. God, I, I even dare to pray for reconciliation. I even ask, Lord, that you would restore our relationship, that you would repair it, that you would mend it. The math of the gospel is that when you pray like that, you are blessed profoundly. And more right flows from that than all of your desire to see wrong punished could ever possibly produce. God, we thank you for your word this morning. And we ask that you would help us to be freed from the prison of unforgiveness as we step into this new year. Lord, cause us to see our enemies with your eyes. Cause us to see ourselves with your eyes. Cause us to see one another with your eyes. We pray it this morning. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Would you stand with me, church?